0: BC. And for those of you who aren't in this room but are in the other room, welcome. Thanks for allowing us to have some space in here. I hope um, you're feeling fully a part of what we're what we're doing in here as so you're over there. Um, I was at a conference speaking to graduate and faculty um, at, from Columbia and NYU just last weekend. And they had asked me to speak on uh, how do you integrate your faith in learning? What's the vision for being graduate students and faculty members um, studying um, increasingly esoteric issues from a Christian perspective? It Does it have any value or not? And so I was preaching out of Colossians 1, that if Jesus Christ is both the Lord of the creation who made all things and the new creation is renewing all things, we find our vocation doing that and kind of, what you know... Uh, did my little spiel Um, after the first talk um, I was speaking with a Chinese international student who was a Christian who came up to me and said you know um, what you're saying is amazing to me because in my church life and in the ministry experiences I've had up to now it's always been communicated to me somehow the things that you're doing at school are somehow less spiritual than the things that we were doing at the church so if I wanted to read a book in the area that I'm working on and he was working on Um, how the Chinese church uh, responded to um, the communist revolution, right? So he's a a sociology history person. He said, every time I write a book on that, people essentially communicate to me, you know, if you really love Jesus, you should be doing evangelism. right? And as I was studying and working, people say, you know, if you really love Jesus. He said, not always overtly, but it was clearly communicated. If you're spending your time working on that paper, it's probably because you're trying to avoid doing ministry, right? And he said, this is the first time ever heard or thought that the daily work I'm doing actually has value to God. And my heart broke because this man is brilliant. Um, he's still quite young. I mean he's he graduate me, student, so he's significantly younger than I am at this point. He's probably in his mid-20s. But I thought he spent so much of his life already believing that God only cares about the few hours a week he's doing religious activity. And somehow we as a church haven't equipped him for that. And so, um, as I thought about what does it mean for us to live missionally, it occurred to me, if we could think about how we live missionally at school and at work, in fact, the opportunities to worship would increase far beyond the hour and a half that we have here on Sunday or at um, a scattered community experience. It would be far richer and more deeper than just having a quiet time individually. But in fact, um, At every moment, we can have an opportunity to worship together. And so, um, as I wrestled with what passage to think about, how do you live missionally in your everyday life, I thought, you know, an everyday passage would be great, because you could always have Paul declaiming on something, you know, glorious and beautiful, but actually watching people do it is helpful, and that's where Ruth 2 comes in. So, as we begin, uh, let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful, Um, I'm so grateful for um, Shante's unfinished story because um, it reminded me of how good you are and um, how at every moment, even in very satisfying times of life, you invite us to trust you, um, to wait for your voice, um, and to experience your goodness where we're at right now. And so, um, in this moment, as we um, listen to the scriptures together, would we listen for your voice, would we trust in your goodness, and would we find direction from you, uh, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Um, turn with me to Ruth, too. If you don't have it open already, um, it may appear on screen or may not. Um, most of you may remember the context of Ruth. There's a woman and her husband who, because of famine in Israel, moved to Moab, and there, her children marry local women. Um, they flourish for a while, and then her husband dies, her sons die, and she, is, uh, she decides to go back to Israel. And she tells her uh, daughters-in-law, you know, stay here with your families. Maybe you can get remarried. Maybe there's a future for you. And uh, one of her daughters-in-law, um, whose name is Orpah, which is actually where Oprah's name came from, but there was a misspelling, she tells us. Uh, Orpah decides to go back to her family, but Ruth um, says, I'm not leaving you. I am going with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Ruth Bender, go go home to a future. I have nothing. I'm old. I'm a widow. I'm, I'm bringing you, essentially, back to Israel to be destitute. And Ruth says, I'm going with you. And so they return um, to Israel, to Bethlehem, when a harvest is just beginning. Uh, the barley harvest. And as Naomi, this woman, introduces herself to people. She says, oh, don't call me Naomi anymore. Uh, call me Mara, which means bitterness, because my life has been bitter. And so these two women have returned to Bethlehem, to Naomi's hometown. And they're destitute. Um, and if you're a widow, you have no source of income. And if you're a double widow, because it's you and your widowed mother-in-law, you doubly have nothing. Um, and it's a poor place to be indeed, both physically but also spiritually, because you're always wondering if God really just hates you that much. That you'd be in this condition. And everyone around you is wondering the same thing as well. Because it's one thing to lose your husband as you're older, but to lose both of your sons simultaneously. And now to have your only source of support be a Moabitess woman. Right? A, a foreigner. Um, you're in desperate straits indeed. So, I want to suggest, though, that as you look at this passage, God's hand um, is active and at work, and he's using the conditions, he's using their work, their, you know, the equivalent of school if you're currently a student, um, first, as the actual context for the spiritual formation that God desires to do in us, because before you can be missional at work or at school, you have to be convinced that God wants to use work and school in your life and in the lives of other people. Right? Because if God only does his work here in this building then it really doesn't matter whether he's out there. But if he expects us to be doing things out there, we need to know he's there as well. So if you look at verses 1 through 5 again, I want you to pay attention to where everybody is located in this passage, right? So now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess... Notice how they distance her immediately, right? Ruth the Moabitess, the foreigner, said to Naomi, Let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now... Um, in the middle of the situation, right, in verses 2 and 3, you actually find Ruth and Naomi, and they're literally in the middle of this section of scripture. And notice how skillfully the author locates the four primary characters in the first three verses. You have Ruth and Naomi who appear in verse 2, and the women are surrounded on either side, sheltered almost by our introduction to Boaz, a relative of a lemon-like. right? So... You have these um, vulnerable women on either side, almost embracing them by the reference, is this uh, mention of Boaz. And then God, I want to suggest, is the fourth character in this passage. And he appears right in the middle, right with Naomi and Ruth. Because where do you find God? Ruth proposes to go glean in the fields. And what that meant was after um, the first run of harvest often... um, grain would drop, right? As you're gathering the sheaves, as you're cutting down, it would fall to the ground and what the command in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19.9 and 23.22 was the Israelites were commanded don't pick up everything that's fallen to the ground, right? Um, Don't try to capture everything that's part of your harvest. Allow the things that fall to fall and then allow the poor particularly the widows, to come in after you and gather up the things that you drop so they also will have food. And part of what God is suggesting is, I will be so super abundantly generous to you that you won't be desperately picking up every head of grain that falls, but if you just harvest naturally, you will have enough. And out of the overabundance of what I provide for you, those in our community that do not have enough will have enough indeed. Right, It's an act of God's provision for the widow. And so as Ruth is working, she's actively experiencing, Right, if she's going to go do some gleaning, she's actively experiencing God's goodness and God's provision for her and her family. And so right in the middle um, of that passage, you have God making his presence known in work. Because just by doing the work that Ruth is called to do, she's experiencing God's goodness and provision, right? Because work is actually part of the context for her of spiritual formation. If she has her eyes open, what she's thinking about as she gleans is, thanks be to God that I worship in a community where the poor and the widow, the orphan and the outcast find a place. As I do my work, I'm experiencing God's provision and abundance. And just as if to underscore that God is present, right? It says in verse um, 3... It just so happens, she. it just turned out this way, that she happens to be gleaning in the field of her mother-in-law's, or her father-in-law's family. Kind of just by accident that way. And I think you see a little bit of God's goodness again, right? That he, She ends up just at the right field to do the things that she needs to be provided for. And I want to suggest that in one way if we want to live missionally at school or at work, um, we truly believe that work is the context for our spiritual formation, for the ways that God is developing us, and it's not the enemy. Because so often, I think when we gather at church, right, or gather at youth group, what you're thinking is, ugh, I need this break so I can refocus on God.
1: If I wasn't at
0: church, man, I just wouldn't think of him at all. And that part of living missionally is, um, I think like Shantay was sharing as she said, you know, what I was doing is I was looking, right? I was, I was engaged in the lives of the people around me, and all of a sudden, conversations about faith would happen. Because I would see God at work in somebody's life. Um, so I wonder, first, how do you have eyes open at your workplaces and school to see where God is already at work? What would it be if as we walk to work in the morning right as we leave our cars rather than running through the to-do list we began to ra- run through a list of where might I see God at work today in the w- conversation that I have with a coworker in the actual substance of what I'm doing, believing that in all of our fields of endeavor, we're doing something to glorify God, right? If you're working in the sciences, um, you're discovering a little bit more of the world that God has made and the beauty with which he's made it. If you're working in the helping professions, whether are in teaching or medicine, on um, social work or something, you're actually actively being God's redemptive hand in those places, comforting those who need comfort, training and developing those who need to be trained. Um, caring those for herding. If you're working um, for the city government or for um, a local institution, part of what you're doing is God's good hand in the world ensuring that there's order, ensuring that people um, have the basic necessities that they need, right? If you're working in construction, you're literally doing the things that God himself does, because you know that God is a builder and a maker, and you're participating in that. If you're a student, right, part of what you're doing, we believe, is actually discovering the world that God made, so that every page in your chemistry textbook, every turn of the page of biology, you're actually able to go, God made this, and I see something of his beauty and his glory. Right As you study literature or the arts, part of what you're saying is, people made in God's image create beauty, and they demonstrate our deep brokenness, and this confirms for me the things that I've always already been studying in Scripture. Right. Every moment we're engaged in work, whether study or actual... Um, wage-earning activity gives us a chance to meet God, gives us a chance to interact with people who need God or who will point us to God. And if we were just on um, what Karen Maines used to call a God hunt, if we had our eyes open to look for those with a sense of anticipation that God is already at work here and so I could pay attention, imagine how fun work could be Spiritually. Right? If it wasn't just, I must get my tasks done, but somewhere during this day of sending email and being in the meetings, I'm going to see God's hand at work and I'm just going to celebrate that for a moment. I know it's going to happen today. Somewhere in a random conversation around a water cooler or in a cafeteria, I'm going to hear God's voice to me. It may be, go speak to that person or pay attention to what this person is saying. I put them there just for you right now. Right? Do you see how all of a sudden work becomes a place where also it's not difficult to imagine missional activity, but instead what you're doing is you're actually joining with what God is already doing there. So, um, if work is the context, because he's going to meet us in it, I want to give us an example in verses 3 through 16 of what it might look like to live missionally, believing that God is already at work at school and at at work. Um, Let me read those verses again. So, you know, she's working in the field belonging to Boaz. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted his harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest at the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And wherever you are thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted, and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves, and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles, and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her." Do you see how God is working throughout this section? Just the basic tasks of work and study? Um, Part of what we do at work, if you want to be a blessing, to act missionally in that place, um, I want to suggest is you can be a blessing and not a burden. So this is a phrase I've been teaching my children. Um, Parents are a little aghast at it, but a a not infrequent question is, are you being a blessing or a burden in this situation? Right? Are you being helpful or hurtful? is another way to put it, but some people don't like suggesting my children aren't always blessings. Because I know your children always are, but... um, So consider Boaz's uh, welcome as he walks in the door, right? The Lord be with you, he says in his workers' response, and the Lord be with you. Now, this may have been just a common, everyday sort of greeting in ancient Israel, but it does make me wonder, when we see our boss coming in the room, do you feel blessed or burdened by their presence? Maybe let me also ask the reverse question. When they see us getting to work in the morning, do they find this to be a blessing or a burden in their life? Um, I want to suggest one fundamental way you could be engaging missionally in your workplaces is to ask the question, how can I be a blessing rather than a burden to the people around me at this moment? It's a pretty simple question but a pretty profound one if we were to act it out right and by being a blessing I don't mean being the kind of person who just says oh bless you bless you bless you right because um, that's charming (laughs) maybe more appropriate in the deep south but if you were to ask in that moment how could I bless that person how could I actually allow them to experience some of God's goodness might it be just a kind word might it be going slightly out of your way to help someone who is struggling at that moment? Might it be just in a small way to forego the need for attention and the limelight to allow somebody else to have the spotlight for a moment, right? What what simple task could you undertake in order to be a blessing? I, I've been working on this with my children. Um, they're in a dual French-English language program at a public school in Manhattan, and um, as always happens, uh, there are French expatriates who come into the country and who drop their children off at public school, and the children are just lost, right? They speak not a lick of English, but thankfully they found this dual language program. So this year I asked both Madeline Kirsten, can you look for that child and sit next to them at lunch? That's all I'm asking you to do today. Could you be kind? And they're just like, I'm so embarrassed. It's like so awkward. Like, how, because they're, they're a little shy. You'll notice if you talk to them, they're boisterous until you speak to them and then they do this. Right? So they're like, we'd be so embarrassed to ask if we could sit next to them. And I just said, but what if God brought you to school today only because he was hoping that this very lonely child who's probably praying that she would have a friend today, somebody would sit next to her at lunch could you be the answer to God's prayer in that moment? And their faces transformed. All of a sudden they thought, you mean I could be an answer to prayer rather than the cause of prayer, I suspect, is what they're <laughs> thinking. And I said, yes, it could be that simple. And of course, so it just so happens, in um, school this year, there's a second grader where my older daughter's at and a kindergarten, both girls, who end up in my daughter's class at my daughter's tables. And so in English class, my older daughter's translating for the um, French student to make sure that the teacher knows what she needs and relaying some simple instructions. And the parents, literally every day I see them as I drop my child off, have said, thank you, your daughter is so kind and polite. And I'm like, are you, it, there are two Asian daughters in this class. like, "But right, It just is so small. I remember when we were at a conference at a hotel, I was debriefing with the manager of the hotel. Has the experience of having these college students at this conference been okay? And one of the um, wait staff captains came to me and said, you know, what's really remarkable is your students look me in the eye and say thank you. She says, I serve banquets and dinners all day, all night. Nobody makes eye contact. They all pretend I'm not there. But for the first time at my job, I feel like I'm a human being and I'm appreciated. All it took was for my students to look them in the eye and to say thank you. Now, created, we trained them to do that. Right? We actually said, will you be gracious to the waitstaff? They are not people who exist just to serve you. Right? They're people made in God's image. How could you be a blessing in this moment? But they just said, all it took was eye contact and a simple thank you to dignify my day. Right? That's all we're saying. To live missionally might be something as small as looking somebody in the eye at work and saying, thank you for doing that. I know you went out of your way. How do you be a blessing and a burden? How can you actually unite and reconcile rather than divide? Because work is really the environment in school, right, as you all know, where you encounter people who are probably the most different from you. Because we don't do it at home. And we don't do it often in our neighborhoods because we're immediately busy. But at work, it gives us an opportunity to engage. So notice what happens in verses 5 um, through 7. The foreman identifies, as, identifies Ruth as this um, foreigner that Moabite. And he does it twice, right, in verse 6. She's that Moabite, when Boaz asked about her, who came back from Moab, which seemed a little redundant, right? But it kind of underscores in the text how desperately this foreman wants to say she's not one of us, right? It's a little bit like saying she's that Chinese woman, you know, that immigrant. Well, we got that once you said the Chinese woman. I mean, it's just, he's, he, the foreman is doing everything that he can to distance himself from, Naomi, from Ruth, right who's that one it 's that foreigner that woman who came from that foreign country okay we got that um, and Think about how that identification would run if you were an Israelite listening to this. Who were the Moabites to Israel? While you may have shared a common ancestry all the way back to the patriarchs, the reality is Moab has been a thorn in your flesh ever since you returned to the land of Israel from Egypt. It was the Moabites who introduced you to idol worship and caused 24,000 of your people to die at Peor as they worshipped the Baals. It was the Moabites who regularly were attacking you and overruling you during the time of the judges when this takes place. To say that you were a Moabite at that time identified you, along with the Philistines, is about the most intense, personal, irritating enemies you could have. Even more irritating, because you shared a common lineage, and so you thought they should have been nice to you, but they've already betrayed you by not being nice to you, right? He's doing all that he can to identify her as an oppressor, as somebody who's um, difficult and a betrayer. And then he throws out, which we all hear a lot, right, when you're talking about somebody who you don't quite trust, often along racial lines. They're that kind of foreign kind of person, but she's a real credit to her people. You know, she's pretty self-sacrificial. She came back with Naomi. She's pretty bold. She's requested permission to glean, so she's polite and not an uppity with that. And from a better position that's really due her, and she's worked pretty faithfully. She's a hard worker who doesn't cause problems, right? And... If you're a person of color at all, you, we've all heard that language of how you get praised by the majority culture. She doesn't cause tra- trouble. She's really polite. She works really hard. Not upbeat. Right. So he's doing all he can to go, wow, she's really out there. Um, and if you look at how Boaz identifies Ruth, it's quite profound. Because in verses 8 through 13, Boaz starts to talk her as a family member, not a foreigner. He talks to her as my daughter, right? Not a stranger, not a, for, a foreigner, not an immigrant, but a member of the family. And when Ruth goes, "Oh no, no, no! Um, I'm not right. Um, why have you found? Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? I'm below the level of your servant girls, right? I don't even have a right to be here." He draws her close again. He identifies her conduct in serving Naomi and her character. It's, sacrificing her people and family, and her conversion to the worship of Yahweh. And he says, look, you're a member of my covenant community. You you are seeking shelter um, under Yahweh's arms here. You belong to me in a far more deep and profound way than mere genetics could ever describe. It's a beautiful thing that Boaz does there. Because he could have said, you're right, you're a beggar. You're right, you're a foreigner. You're right, you're a woman who has no husband, right? You're prey here if I choose to make you prey. And what Boaz says is, no, no, my daughter. No, no, you who are showing such kindness to one of my relatives. No, no, you are one who belongs to the people who sought shelter under Yahweh's arms in the same way I have. We're family in a deeply profound way. What would it look like? For us to be agents of reconciliation, of binding rather than division in our workplaces. Now, not everyone, obviously, is a follower of Jesus in our workplaces, but what would it look like if we leaned into the Beatitudes and said, what would it mean to say we really do believe blessed are the peacemakers? right?" In every work environment I've been in, all of you who are in school know people don't get along. And in fact, the bad thing about work, unlike school, is that not only do you not get along, but you don't graduate to another grade in, in the hopes that you'll, you can avoid them next year, but they're just there, year after year after year, unless you have the fortune to be able to change jobs on a frequent basis, right? I mean, um, what would it look like if the people of God saw that not as a problem to be endured, but an opportunity to demonstrate that we worship the reconciler? What would it look like if we were the kind of people who, when we are in the midst of conflict, don't turn passive-aggressive or avoid it or get belligerent, but actually insert ourselves into that and begin with the most clear way to communicate the gospel I can think of at any time or place to say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Because what more clearly could point to the reality that Jesus Christ has forgiven us, what could point more... Uh, Clearly to the reality that we know we're sinners and we know we're broken? What could point more clearly to the reality that we all need grace than to ask for grace for ourselves from someone else, right? If you want to open the door to the gospel, let me suggest at your workplaces or schools, it probably doesn't begin necessarily by being the happiest, most joyful person in the room because you're just often irritating to the rest of us who don't feel that way all the time. Now, you may draw some attention, people may go, you seem unusually joyful, but let me suggest it probably isn't because you're just bubbly as a personality, because we have categories for people like that. It probably doesn't just mean that you're placid and undisturbed by the hard realities of life, though that's admirable, but a lot of other world religions offer that as well. What Christians bring to the table sort of uniquely, I think, is actually bringing our brokenness and our weakness to the table. Being unashamed to acknowledge our need, which we know is desperate, eternal, and true. right? Throwing ourselves at the mercy of God at the cross, and then, by definition, being unashamed then to admit that that's who we are in front of the people around us. And then often, I think, for us, inviting acts of grace, or requesting acts of grace be extended to us, because of the great abundance that we've received from God. And then offering it in return, I think right of your testimony in your unfinished story, as you began to share your weakness, as you shared some places you struggled, all of a sudden your faith became attractive to people. Because we met them as people. So if you would to enter places of brokenness in your workplace with the question, how do I act as an agent of reconciliation, it probably often begins with first confessing our own sin. Against them, or our collusion in it, our participation in it. I think um, it could happen around work situations, or you know, school conflicts. But often, right, it's the social situations that we find in ourso- ourselves in as well. Um, I know from talking to a lot of my black colleagues in intervarsity what they've longed for throughout this entire Black Lives Movement um, um, during the entire Black Lives Matter movement in the United States over the last couple months is they've said, man, if just one non-black person would come up to me and say, I'm seeing the pain and agony, and I confess I don't understand it well, would you give me the incredible gift of explaining your experience to me and what uh, the black community is feeling now? And then to receive it without the need to judge it, without the need to evaluate it, without the need to go, oh, I don't quite agree, but just to receive the pain of it. They said, when that's happened, it's been some of the most thoroughly healing times in my life. Because finally I'm being heard and understood and seen. Now, some of them have also said, honestly, I'm exhausted by this and I can't. And part of grace is then when they say, I cannot enter this with you right now, to say, I understand, I just want you to know that you have somebody here who would be very happy to listen and to share and to hold that burden with you. But if you can't right now, then I just want you to know I'm standing with you. Right? Right? It'd be a small thing, but a massive thing. In conversations around immigration, right, as the political season heats up, I just want to say, right, for anybody who is an immigrant or a child of an immigrant, all of the fears about are we going to be accepted in this country or not come back to the surface. All it would take would be a kind word. If, you're, if you work with women at all, and you're at a meeting and you watch how women regularly get uh, talked over or ignored in the meeting, which happens all the time, for another Amanda so actually I think Amanda already made that point five minutes ago or I noticed that we talked over her three times already could we stop and listen carefully those small acts of reconciliation are part of what it means to live in mission in our workplace last last thing maybe um, right how do you be a blessing and not a burden How might you act as reconcilers and not dividers at work? But notice at the end how Boaz acts as a creator and not just a consumer at work. Um, Boaz expects the Lord in verses 12 through 16, or at least asks the Lord to repay Ruth's faithful character and conduct with having enough. Um, And he bases it not on karma, like, hey, you worked really hard, good things will happen to you, but he just goes, I pray that the Lord will richly reward you for your sacrificial love for Naomi, for sacrificing your own family and your hard worker. May you experience the Lord's goodness. His justice, in fact, because as Hebrews um, six ten reminds us, uh, God will not forget the good work that you've done on behalf of his people, right? He is not unjust that way. And so... What I love is that God begins to answer this prayer of Boaz's, right? This blessing that Boaz decides to offer through Boaz's own actions in verses 15 to 16. Um, Boaz goes, you know, you you see Boaz generously responding, and this is part of what work does. Boaz provides opportunity for Ruth. Here, glean here in the fields. He provides security for Ruth just by doing his work I've told the men not to molest you. He's providing resources for her. Here, have some bread. Have, dip your bread in our vinegar water. Have a little bit more roasted grain so that you have an, a, left over even after you eat your full. It doesn't cost him much to do this because all he's saying to the workers at that point is do your work and by just being faithful at doing your work you will provide work for other people. Right? Part of the way that we act missionally at work is just doing our work because when we do our work other people get to do work too and then he goes further he provides additional opportunity for Ruth so it's not just glean at the edges but actually feel free to work in the sheaves and don't rebuke her for that he gives her dignity multiple times by telling his foreman how to treat this foreigner as somebody who has value in his system right, and, and deserves protection and he goes further than is required by the law um, and so uh, even if she pulls out some stocks from the bundle or actually Take some of the food that is legitimately ours and just throw it on the ground so that she has more to gather at the end. <clears throat> what I love about Boaz at that moment is he doesn't go to work asking a consumer question, how do I get all I want from this? But he actually goes into a work situation and creates abundance for other people. Right? He's actually creating abundance rather than just hoarding goodness for himself. Um, Because it would have been enough if Boaz had just said, let the poor people glean what they can, but I'd like you to be really careful in gathering everything. Right? It's not enough that he just said, you know, um, look, don't sexually abuse this woman who is prey, but she has nobody to defend her. Right? I mean, that would be appropriate activity, you would think. But he goes beyond, and he begins to feed her, right? It would be enough if he just tossed out a few scraps of bread, but he actually gives her so much roast grain to eat that she could eat her full, which coming out of a land of famine probably has not happened often. And so she could eat her full and still have enough to bring home to her mother-in-law, when we're acting missionally at work I want to suggest that we stop playing a zero sum game of there will not be enough time there will not be enough resources, there won't be enough stuff for everyone. Believing that if God gave us work to do that when we do our work well we'll actually open up opportunities for other people right? I was listening to Andy Crouch, who wrote a book called Playing God, which is fantastic. Talk about, you know, one of the beautiful things. He's, he took up cello in his 40s so he could create um, a string quartet with his family, because that's the kind of artistic overachiever he is. And, um, but he said, the great thing about working with my, my cello teacher is that as he teaches me, the actual um, abundance of the world increases, because he loses nothing by the teaching, and I'm gaining skill, and so we actually have more skill available. So in your workplaces, looking missional might be taking that younger person under the wing who's really struggling and offering the tips and ideas and mentoring that they need to really succeed. And knowing that it will not actually hurt your career, but will actually create greater abundance in your workplace. Right? If you're in school, it means walking alongside a student who's either better than you and asking for their help, This will actually open your doors and they'll gain greater mastery of their subject by helping teach you, and then offering that same gift to somebody else who might be struggling. Right In our homes, we all know, right, um, we can create abundance or scarcity just by our attitude. So um, yesterday, my children were trying to help me bake a cake. It was a plum tart, and um, frankly, right, nothing is easier when they're involved because they're only five and seven. It takes more time. You have to negotiate who got enough chances to stir the batter. Was it fair that they dumped a cup of flour? I only did a half cup of flour, right? I mean, all of that was worse. But in the end... It was an act of creation together where we got to work together as a family. Where I had the delight as a father of taking their really misshapen attempts to help and weaving it together in such a way that I'm older and stronger and more experienced with them, I can take their mistakes and still make it work. And I think that's so much of what we could do at work to live missionally there, and so much of what God desires to do in us and through us, in spite of our mistakes while we're doing it. Let me end with this. Um, if work is the place where God is actually spiritual, for us, which pr- allows us then to look for what he's asking us to do, and if we're to be a blessing and not a burden, if we're actually to be reconcilers and to create, not just consume, I want us to be. notice at the end um, how good God is, right? Because those who are hungry suddenly have food. Um, Ruth gathers an ephah of... Grain, which is about a month's ration. She's gleaned 30 pounds of grain over the course of this experience, right? And she has leftovers for lunch, just to top it off, right? Because of who Boaz is and the way she's meeting God at work and Boaz is acting missionally, Ruth and Naomi have more than enough. And those who are bitter, Mara, Naomi now has reasons for thanksgiving, you see in verses 19 through 20, right? Um... Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Because this is the first time blessing rather than cursing is coming out of her mouth in this passage. And Naomi sees um, the Lord's um, sustained loving kindness behind Boaz's generosity. And where the Lord's hand was against her, is what she said at the end of chapter 1. He's now for her. And um, those who are hopeless now have hope. Um, We've been introduced to the man who's actually going to rescue this family and um, Naomi are set and they're safe. They'll have food, they're going to have physical security and shelter for at least the next two months. The chapter sets out, right? When we act missionally, there's going to be flourishing. Now what I want to note at the end is that weirdly enough, at church, talking about missional, I've spoken very little about words like evangelism. I've said very little about overt religious activity. Now that all has a place, and I suspect we'll get to that at another time when we talk about mission. But what I wanted to suggest is for us, as we think about living out, engaging in mission, most often it's in the small, unnoticed, unnoticeable things that we do which don't seem overtly spiritual to anybody else except those people who have eyes to see and those who are intentionally looking for opportunities to serve that God will actually be at work. It may eventually turn into an opportunity to share your faith. It may turn into a Bible study and praise God if it does. But for most of us, missional activity, those activities, the groundwork will be laid by the small intentional choices to manifest God's goodness, love, and provision to be a blessing in those moments rather than a burden. And imagine if all of us here walked into work Monday with that attitude. The small environmental changes that would occur as tensions began to ebb in our departments or offices. As people began to experience enough flourishing and goodness that they'd stop clenching and grasping and begin to let go and open their hands. If we really believed that abundance would begin to flow. You see, all of a sudden, then those are the conditions under which God's goodness is manifested where you can point in your brokenness to the gospel and it could be received. And I think where the Holy Spirit will be at work within us as a community. So I think back to my graduate school student friend and while I talked about the substance of his work part of what we, I always wanted to affirm to him is it's certainly in the things that you're studying, the, the work that you're doing that you'll meet God. And that the way everyone else around you will meet God will be as your character is formed into Christ-likeness as you live out, in simple ways, the call to be his presence in those places. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're good. And I pray for my friends here at CBC, would our eyes be open um, to the tremendous opportunities you have before us. uh, To demonstrate your goodness, um, to manifest some of your creativity, and uh, to live missionally the other six days that you've given us. Amen.